welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Sermon text is from Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. It's on page 871 of your Pew Bible. I would encourage you to open that. It's always good to see what I'm saying. It's good to, it's good to uh, correspond with the words that are coming out of this mouth with the words that are on that page. It's 871 in your pew Bible, Luke chapter 12. If C.S. Lewis was the radio voice of the English people in the 1940s, then G.K. Chesterton was the radio voice of the 1930s. I'm going with another historical illustration again from last week. At his funeral eulogy, it was said of Chesterton that all of this generation has grown up under Chesterton's influence so completely that we do not even know when we are thinking Chesterton, when we are thinking Chesterton. See, like Lewis, Chesterton wasn't a professional theologian or a pastor. He was literally and figuratively a larger-than-life journalist, a larger-than-life journalist. When, when asked why he wasn't out at the front, at World War I. He wasn't out at the front. He said, if you go around to the side, you'll see that I am out at the front. Um, He was a funny guy, uh, and he was literally built just like me. So there's your picture. As I've been reading and meditating upon the Gospel of Luke this week, my feeling, my feeling in reading this Gospel has been at the same time like like a warm blanket or a comfortable blankie like my three-year-old has. She has her blankie but it's also at the same time convicting and perplexing, and it's absolutely interesting. At, at, Jesus is absolutely interesting to me this week, which brought me back to Chesterton. In his 1925 book, The Everlasting Man, in one of his countless tangents, Chesterton wrote of his experience in reading the Gospels, and he said this, a man simply taking the words of the gospel story as they stand would form an impression full of mystery and possibly of inconsistency, but certainly not merely an impression of mildness. It would be intensely interesting, but part of the interest would consist in its leaving a good deal to be guessed at or explained, which describes very clearly the state of my heart and my mind this week in reading the gospel about Jesus according to Luke. Chesterton has been called the prince of paradox, which is another way to say he's just like Jesus. He's just like Jesus. He holds things together that are so hard to hold together in tension. He is the ultimate sage. Our Lord Jesus is the ultimate sage, the great philosopher. He's the confounding king. This has been my thought space. And so uh, I want to bring you into my thought space this week. And I really would encourage you, um, I would encourage you to go read this gospel for yourself. One of the things that Chester was so clear about was there are a lot of people who criticize the church and the gospel, um, but they don't actually read it because Jesus is far more confounding than you would actually believe. I, I hate the church, but I love Jesus. 
he's, he's totally confused by that. And same here. So read the gospel of Luke this week. Make every effort to not explain away. So if you, if you have good evangelical Christian uh, mind and ears to sort of like try to explain away all of the tough passages as you read, make every way, every effort, every effort. Those are the words that are supposed to come out of my mouth. Every effort not to explain away the unbelievable mercy and the mystifying words of Jesus that come at the same time. And in many ways, our gospel reading from Luke chapter 12 is where, where two big ideas come together in a seemingly paradoxical way in Luke chapter 12, where the life-giving and the confounding wisdom of Jesus come together. And so I want to introduce uh, the wide context of Luke and then and then and then zoom into our text. So the gospel of Jesus, according to Luke, this is the longest book in the New Testament. If you count the book of Acts, uh, the, the volume two of Luke and Acts, uh, the Jesus story, this is 28% of the New Testament. He's the only Gentile author in, in the New Testament. And so over a quarter of the New Testament is written by Gentiles like you and me. So there's a lot there. There's a lot in this story. But one of the things that you can do when you summarize the gospel of Luke is you can, you can overlay a geographical structure over the gospel. Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. And then in chapter nine, it says that he turns his face to Jerusalem. So he turns his face to Jerusalem and then the movement of the gospel going up. And he repeats this over and over again, moving up into Jerusalem where he climactically in chapter 19 enters into Jerusalem. So where the other gospels will show Jesus going back and forth. Uh, from Jerusalem to Galilee and back and forth, Luke builds up this tension. And so you're meant to feel this movement. And this journey, this movement in Luke's gospel recalls the story of the people of Israel that we heard in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. See, just like Genesis, Luke begins with an origin story of an old barren woman conceiving the promised heir. And in our sermon text in Luke chapter 12 and verse 35, Luke explicitly explicitly recalls Israel's midnight Passover meal. In Exodus chapter 12, he says, he says, get dressed or gird up your loins, which is one of the best phrases ever in the Bible. Gird up your loins, get dressed, get ready, make preparation for the journey out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land, just as Jesus leads his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem, to the promised land of his death and resurrection. So Jesus is the new Israel in Luke's gospel. He is a greater Moses who delivers his people. He is the end times Messiah come to save his people from their sins. And so this is the wider context of Luke's gospel. Let's zoom in closer to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 begins with a pretty consistent teaching of Jesus. It might be familiar to you. And here it is in paraphrase, stop giving all of your attention to the outward appearance of righteousness. Stop caring what other things, other people think about you all the time. They have the appearance of power and authority, but you shouldn't be afraid of them because all they can do is kill you, Jesus says. All they can do is kill you. 
Wouldn't you rather give your devotion to the God who intimately created you and specifically cares for you? He is the one who holds eternity in his hand. And so he continues in verse 13. Someone in the crowd has a dispute about inheritance. It seems out, it seems random and out of nowhere. So Jesus responds first off, and this is the best. Uh, what are you asking me that question for? Why are you asking me that question, random guy in the crowd? And secondly, were you listening to anything I've, I've been saying? Powerful people cannot satisfy your desire for esteem and security, and neither can you inherit this promised land by the law, by outward obedience alone. Remember the movement of the narrative in Luke's gospel. Jesus is the one who is leading his people into the promised land, up towards Jerusalem. But the land is not primarily a place in Scripture. It's not Old Testament, New Testament alike. It's not fundamentally about the physical space. It's about the presence of Yahweh God being in this place. This is what makes the Holy Land holy. So he says to be rich toward God, not towards your inheritance the kingdom or the land. Stop grasping for these things. In verse 22, he continues. So now he turns to his disciples. He's been discussed, he's been talking with the crowds and he turns to his disciples. And now he says, because of all of this, I've just said to the crowd, all this that I've just said, he turns now and speaks tenderly to his disciples. And he says, if you continue if you continue in the way of grasping for the promised inheritance for yourself, then you will never receive it. Grasping, greed, or coveting, this is the way of fear and anxiety, and it leads to despair and death. Don't you remember the Psalms? Don't you remember the Psalms that we sing day and night? Imagine this first century Jewish rabbi singing Psalms over you morning and evening all throughout as they walk. When I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, when I open my eyes and I look around at the sheep and the oxen and the ravens and the birds and the fish, you, you can hear the Psalms in your head. The fullness the fullness of your creation. And then I remember all of this abundance, this plentiful goodness comes from you. And so Jesus says to his disciples intimately, trust me, my disciple. Follow me, my disciple. Do not grasp for your inheritance. Do not put your hope in your physical health or your retirement account or your stuff. Walk this narrow path in the wilderness with me on our way up to Jerusalem as we go on towards the promise and I lead you there. The wide path links to anxiety. Fix your eyes upon the Creator God and all of His abundance and be satisfied whether you have plenty or you are in want. So this is, this is the buildup to our sermon text. We're now finally to our reading from uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. And Jesus continues to address his disciples in private. And this is where, this is where two seemingly paradoxical ideas come together in the gospel of Luke at verse 32. And it kind of ties a bow on everything that we've been building up to. So here is Jesus, the ultimate sage the confounding, the prince of paradox. He says this in verse 32, and this is how I would, I would summarize his, his point in verse 32 through 34. 
Live with fearless fear. He calls his disciples to live with fearless fear. Do not fear and fear at the same time. So our gospel reading in this morning began with this affectionate appeal to do not be afraid, little flock. And it recalls back to verse 4 in chapter 12. Look with me. The same admonition, do not be afraid. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn, I will warn you whom to fear. Hear this. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. And just in case you missed it, yes, I tell you, fear him. If you, if you thought you're hearing that incorrectly, fear God. In verse 32, fear not. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So which is it? Is it, is it walk in fear or is it do not fear? And here's the reality. Here's the reality of this paradox that comes together. You will fall down on your face. You will do that. You will either do it before men or you'll do it before the holy God. You see, you can live your life in fear of man or of God. You can live your life grasping for physical security for glory and esteem, for your inheritance, or you can put all your hope in God and you can open up your hands, he says. Release your grasp on all your stuff and of all your striving for security. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear, little flock. This admonition, it enters into our world of fear and insecurity just as it did for the disciples. This is the default state of humanity. Fear and anxiety and insecurity and lack of stability. We have, we have and we live with a constant scarcity mindset. There's not enough for me. There's not enough for all of us to go around. Everything is fear and anxiety. And so we grasp and we covet and we have no rest. Pay attention to what you devote yourself to because these, these narratives are everywhere. You don't have to turn any, you don't, you don't have to turn any which way. You can turn every way and find this story. The former advisor to the World Health Organization uh, and UNICEF, he was a Swedish Swedish physician by the name of Hans Rosling. He spent decades of his life proving this point. He, He proved this point, and without fail, when he asked if there are enough resources on earth to feed and provide for the world's growing population, he, 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 did the, he did this all over the world to all different kinds of nations and organizations. So when he, when he asked this question, are there enough resources on earth to feed and provide the world's growing population? In every country and in every organization he surveyed, against all the evidence, the wealthier participants in the survey were the more pessimistic. They were, they were the more pessimistic, and it's not even close. They had a pessimistic view of the world. They had a scarcity mindset. So my goal in this sermon isn't to convince you of some data or ask you to go read a book. 
But here's the reality. The more that we have, the more that we grasp for and we hold on to the abundance, the plentiful abundance that God has given us in creation in this abundant world, the more we grasp for this, the more we try to find our peace in physical security and stuff, this give me my inheritance mindset, the end result of that way of living is always this, this panicky, scarcity and survival, walking dead kind of reality. Fear and anxiety and pessimism. So look with me at verse 33 of chapter 12. Jesus speaks words of life to his disciples. Remember, he says, do not fear, little flock. And in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here's the question. In everything, in everything in life, do you live with an open hand or a closed fist? An open hand or a closed fist. This principle is not simply about money, but it absolutely is about money, okay? It's not just about money, but it absolutely has to do with money. Read Luke chapter 3 in the conversations, John the Baptist and the tax collectors and the centurions. Uh, read Luke 19 about Zacchaeus, and he gives up half of everything to follow Jesus. And so the, the, the issue is not about a total or a sum or a specific amount or even money in particular. The issue, whether you're talking about whether Jesus says to give it all away or give half of it away or manage it well or don't extort, however he decides to say it in whatever context, the idea is, are you holding are you holding it with an open hand or are you closing it with a fist? Are you grasping for it yourself? Are you fearing others and fearing this world and, and, ang- and, and anxious? Or are you fearing God and then paradoxically having no fear? You see, I want to live in the place where no thief approaches and no moth destroys and this is not just a future promise. This is not, this is not out there eschatology. This is here and now. Lord, make it on earth as in heaven right now. Give, give me that heart right now. How do we live with this fearless fear of God at the same time? Jesus gives us a parable. A parable, a story to, to get into our imaginations. And there's two ways to read this story. And this is what we're going to end with. In verse 35, there's two ways to read this story. You can either read this parable of Jesus as a fearful slave. You can hear this parable as a fearful slave or as a steadfast steward. So these are your options. Fearful slave mentality or steadfast stewardship. Look with me at verse 35. Stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants." 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the master Picture this in your mind. The master, you're, you're alone at home. The master is gone at the wedding feast and you don't know when he will return. Jesus says, if you knew that a thief was coming to your house, wouldn't you not make preparations to protect yourself against this thief coming to your house and be ready for the attack? There are two different ways to read this parable. If we fear men, and we grasp for security for ourselves, if we live with a scarcity mindset, then our master is a thief and a tyrant. Hear this. Our master, our Lord, we picture our God as a thief and a tyrant, which can only lead to fear and anxiety fearful and anxious preparations to guard against his return. Is this not how many of us think of God? This is how we think of him. We cower in confession because we don't want to be grounded when mom and dad come home from vacation and find the house destroyed. This is, this is a, how a fearful slave lives. Fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your identity, follower of Jesus, is not fearful slave, but a steadfast steward. The creator God, the Lord of all abundance, has given you stewardship of the home while he is away. None of it's yours. None of the possessions in it. None of the walls and the stuff is yours. But because you love the king, you love your master. You seek to honor him by running the home in his absence just as if he, he would if he were there. Not as a busy, dutiful, and fearful Martha, which we just heard about in Luke's gospel, but as a peaceful Mary at the feet of Jesus. This is not, this is not about waiting in fear for your parent to come home in judgment, but rather about making preparations for an honored guest to arrive. And if you're reading Luke's gospel attentively, the honored guest over and over again in Luke's gospel is not just the returning king, it is women. It is the poor and the sick. It is the president of the United States. Whoever makes your blood boil, if the centurion, the prostitute, the tax collector, the fascists or the anti-fascists, right? The racists or the anti-racists, the Republicans, the Democrats, he even welcomes the thief. This is beautiful. He even welcomes the thief as an honored guest into his home. And so to be the steadfast steward of this kingdom means eagerly awaiting the king's return by giving away all the treasure to everyone who comes before he returns. This is steadfast stewardship, releasing with open hands, fearing God and not fearing man. So here's the question of our text. Is God the Son, the Son of Man, going to return as a thief in your imagination or as a king? As a thief or king? Is Jesus the ruler and master of the new creation where there is no thief and you await his coming? 
with hopeful anticipation, not busying yourselves with all the fear-soaked stories and things that we're told that if you're a good citizen, you should pay attention to the news all the time, as if it's good for your soul. Like, get rid of the internet. It's not good. It's not good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you waiting this king who's coming, or are you living in sheepish slavery and anxious servitude? Blessed are those, verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And when he comes, truly I say to you, the king, Jesus, will dress himself for service and have all of you, faithful stewards, recline at table and he will come and serve them. He will come into the house and serve you. He is the returning one. Once dead and now alive, the servant king, not a wimpy thief or a scary tyrant. So live without fear, fearing God as steadfast stewards who live in little moments remembering the king, remembering the king. Live today with a whole and a repentant heart before the king, not as one who performs when his master is just watching and then abuses others when he suspects that the master doesn't see. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 